Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Hello, Blenders, and welcome to episode number 61 of Real Blend, a podcast that spends most of its time carrying Leonardo DiCaprio's load. My name is Sean O'Connell, <laughs> the managing director here at Cinema Blend. And I really want to turn this into a Game of Thrones podcast, but Gabe simply won't let me. And I know that Kevin McCarthy and Jake Hamilton would definitely join me on that. Can we Can we just mutiny and overthrow Gabe and talk Game of yeah, Thrones? Yeah, you know, why do we listen to what Gabe says? Gabe, really, we've established, doesn't want us to have any fun. Every time uh, we try to do something fun on the show, he shoots us, <laughs> shoots us down. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I have to comment on on your opening. <laughs> Why? That was that was so perfect. Um, I, I hope people uh, listen to that yeah. without having seen the Tarantino trailer. Yeah. yeah. So they just think that it's some weird sexual <laughs> euphemism. But now let me let me give context. Um. So we're gonna get into this into our. Into our I'd show rather you today. didn't really. No, I want to because the people have no idea what that means if they haven't seen the trailer. We're gonna discuss the new Quentin Tarantino trailer today on the show. Once upon a time in Hollywood. That is a joke that's made in the trailer, and in the sense of the joke that's made, the original line is about carrying the load of an actor, meaning like a stunt person doing the work for an actor. Um, but it is turned into the joke that Sean's referring to. I just wanted to give context. Thank you. Way to take all the fun out of it, Kevin. No, it's funny, but I mean, I mean, think about someone. It's not- just nice that I'm not the one that earned us the explicit rating this time around. It was actually Sean I didn't this say time. Anything. That's not a bad word. I think I can get through through with that. Game well, no, not after this conversation. It means something different once you've seen the trailer. But I do want to say, uh, to Sean's point, Game of Thrones, and we'll, we'll, let's take two minutes on this and then we'll move on because I know Gabe wants to, to rush through this. But Sean and Go. I are in the middle of a very heavy rewatch. Uh, yes. I'm, I'm going, I've seen one through four seasons, but I am started over because it's been a long time. So I'm on season three, episode one. Sean is actually breaking down every single... So Sean's never seen Game of Thrones. So he just experienced like the gigantic spoilers in season one, which we won't say. Um, But if you go to YouTube, Cinema Blend's YouTube... Make They're sure you so watch fun. It. Yeah, because you're They're gonna... so fun. Yeah, and you'll it's see... actually and it's great for me as someone who has watched the show live since episode one to get a nice. It's I get both a recap of what happens because you guys do a really good job. The very well edited videos are about thirteen minutes a piece of like highlights from each episode. Sean's reactions to them, so then you get to see the show. From the perspective, from fresh eyes, the perspective of someone who has no idea what's happening, and then Sean does a very fun um, sort of recap at the end. They're, honestly, like I keep texting Sean and Gabe asking, "When are you guys putting up the new?" Video? I don't know how you're going to get them all in before April 14th. You guys so are going to have to speed well, it up. I, mean, I, I really don't know how. Like today, I tried to juggle normal work and the watching, and literally, my bosses have said to me, "Like just watch Game of Thrones episodes during the day. Like that's your, that's your, I'm okay with that. That's awesome. It is. (laughs) But like, it's also really hard to just like not respond to emails or just like keep your normal workflow going because once you start it, it's an uninterrupted video. Like I start it and then I watch, I watch the episode and film my reaction and then go right into an analysis and ends up being like an hour and 10 minutes straight through. And I can't like pause it, stop it, get up, you know, do things. And I'm very, you know, distracted by everything around me kind of thing. So that's been the hardest part is really just sitting down and paying attention and trying to keep track of who everybody is. 
I need to bring Does up Gabe one edit your videos? Some of them, yes. They're very well, and the, the editing is very funny. They're, they're, they, you know, Sean will be talking about something, and there'll be like a fun little note, like a little commentary about what it is that you're saying. It's, it's, it's fantastic. Also, Sean, I love yeah. you. It's Daenerys. <laughs> people Daenerys. hate that I. People are yeah. killing me in the comments. And my dog I, is now looking over because I keep saying her but, name over and over. It's not Daenerys. But the Daenerys. way that I know how to say it is because I thought you it's keep wrong. calling your dog Daenerys. I thought I've you never call once your called dog. my dog Daenerys. No, it's I not thought Daenerys. you called. I, I call I know my it's dog Daenerys ask her. now. I get it. Well, I thought her name was Khaleesi when I started this whole thing. So well, Khaleesi is it means queen. I know um, so that now. Also, the oh, Momo was in it longer than one season. I have a bone. I have a bone <laughs> to pick. Uh, I have a question for Jake, and I want Jake to answer this yes or no because I believe I already know his answer. Okay, uh, Jake, you've seen all of Game of Thrones up to the final season, obviously. Um, you so claim hot. you claim so that Breaking Bad, that Game of Thrones is better than Breaking Bad. Is that correct? Okay, season two of Game of Thrones is the reason why it's not better than Breaking Bad. Season two is like pretty not well written. I don't. I, I'm so confused as to why you think it's better than Breaking Bad. How no, is that possible? Right. Every episode of Breaking Bad is perfect. Gabe, tell me we don't have time to get into this, right? Sean, no. do you yeah. think it's better than Breaking Bad? Think you I can't, can't ask say that. Now. Now. Where you soon. are right now, is it better than Breaking that's not, Bad? That's not fair. That's I can't say fair. that now. Gabe, that's not fair. All right. Anyway, God go to the man, Cinema Blend YouTube channel if you guys want to watch my reactions to Game of Thrones as we go. Um, we have a new logo. Uh, Producer Gabe says, if you refresh your podcast feed... There are some apps uh, you have to manually refresh and the artwork within the app will show up. You should start to see our fancy new logo. Our design team put it together for us. You can also go to our Twitter feed. Let us know what you think at at RealBlend. While you're at the Twitter feed, go to the pinned message we have at the top. It is a link that you can RSVP to our Chicago meetup. Um, We're going to be doing something on Saturday, April 13th. Uh, We're going to be looking to meet up around 5 o'clock Central time. We're going to have more details as we get a better sense out of how many people are coming. We've got a bunch of RSVPs already, which is great. Do we? we want, yeah, we do actually. Um, and I, we want everybody to come. So RSVP at bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash Real Blend Chicago. Or I believe you can also email us at Real Blend, no, Real Blend at cinemablend.com. Right, Gabe? Yeah, that works also. So RSVP, come along, hang out with um, the Real Blend crew, including producer Gabe, who is coming to Chicago with us. And I feel so, like most people are coming for Gabe. That's what I said to him. I said he's going to be like a legend at the meetup, right? Like everyone's going to want to hang out with him. Who yeah. wouldn't want to hang out with him? In it's, fact, it's, it's high school all over again. I, no one I don't know if I can say this yet, but we're working on a video project and it's going to have a prominent role for Gabe. Yeah, that's all I can say. That's all I can say right now. There's going to be a video element of Real Blend somewhere down the line. I'll tell you guys about it. I'll tell you guys about it later. And Gabe will have a a pretty prominent element to it. So anyway, we begin each episode as we normally do with reviews. We have two this week. uh, One from Canada, where Crinoline, Crinoline, yes, says, Love Film? This is a must-listen. 
If you love all things film, this podcast is definitely for you. I've been watching Kevin's interviews for several years and really enjoy his technical and thoughtful interview style. So when this podcast was launched, I knew I would like it. Little did I know, the banter between the guys would be so entertaining and insightful. I love to listen on my long commute to and from college. Thank you, Kevin, Jake, Sean, and Gabe for providing your commentary to all things film and the industry each week, Dunkirk. With a subtle period I don't know. afterwards. My mom moved to Canada. I had no idea. <laughs> she's applied for citizenship. Yeah, I, I'm telling you, these IP addresses that she's working on, it's amazing. Well, she's gonna you're gonna be annoyed by her opinion in this next one. Because <laughs> as she Uh-oh. as she takes on the pseudonym John Zalewski, oh, she okay. says one of the best. I have several movie podcasts in my weekly rotation, and this is by far my favorite one. Sorry, slash film, they put. I love that. That's a nice little dig at our competition. I originally found the podcast because I've been following... I like Peter, though. He's a nice guy. He's a great guy. Um, I originally found the podcast because I've been following Jake's career. So what I'm realizing is that no one's followed my career. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of people follow Kevin. (laughs) This guy follows Jake. Uh, For many years, I loved the questions he asked and how he conducted himself in press junket interviews. From there, I naturally found Kevin's interviews as well. And while I tend to usually agree with all of Jake's takes, pun intended, I love hearing each one of you express your opinions on film every week. Whenever a new episode comes out, it makes my 45-minute commute to work that much more enjoyable. Thanks, guys, for the weekly laughs, thoughtful discussions, and borderline horrible puns. P.S. Sean is 100% correct. Lord of the Rings is just eh. He says. Did you add that in yourself? No, I didn't. I didn't. I would have added something about Kill Bill being two films. That's what I would have thrown in. So, uh, talking points. We right before we got on here, um, we learned that I'm I'm jumping out of order. Bill and Ted three has an official release date. Did you guys see the video that those two did? Yeah, I did. Great. I did. Very great. I, I, I cannot wait to see those two together. Uh, doing. It's fun to see how effortlessly they slip back into those characters. Like they, they even just. And they did it on purpose, obviously, but, like, the way that they spoke. Yeah. It was just, like, I have no question that they'll be able to pull those characters off again. Was it me or was Keanu Reeves, like, in full John Wick look? Like, he looked like he was in, like, John Wick mode. He had, like, the beard. He had the long hair. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, that's obviously not what Bill's gonna, or Bill and Ted are going to look like uh, in the movie. So, I I have a feeling, are they, are, do you think they're still shooting John Wick 3 or still messing around with some of the shots? Because the oh, new I wonder if they have to do... This yeah, week. I wonder if they do reshoots for it. I'm not sure. He looked like John Wick. That was definitely a John Wick look. So this uh, is... My question is, and this is such a random question, but when you're watching the video, so if people who haven't seen this, it's, it's, it's you know, Bill and Ted doing a, an announcement for uh, the t- summer of 2020, which, by yeah. the way, is now going to be up there with the Chris- new Christopher Nolan movie, which is kind of cool. Um, and... I don't know if you noticed it, but midway through, a random lady walked yeah, by. Yeah, yeah. Who was that? Did, did, did they not, like, tell people <laughs> to clear the area? Uh, I, I was very curious who she is. Right. Because I bet you, in this day and age of, like, Easter eggs and things like that with movies, what if she's, like, some type of big character in the movie and that, that's the way they're introducing it? I don't know, but it was a very... You would think that that area would be cleared, right? Yeah. It's funny. I actually didn't notice that girl. I remember thinking the same thing. Like, did they, did they not was stop that? people from walking through? That was very strange. Uh, we also learned since last time we spoke that James Gunn is coming back. Um, they yeah, re- he is. They rehired him uh, for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. And the big surprise about this news is that apparently this happened a, l- a couple of months ago. Uh, he met with Alan Horn, the president of Disney, they talked out the fact that his tweets 
that they removed him for were not necessarily reflective of who he is as a person. The two Guardians films, to me, speak to the fact that it's all about uh, bettering yourself and learning from your past mistakes. He's made two films that essentially state that, that this is what his belief is. And so they have brought him back on board. The one thing that surprised me a bit about this, so we know Guardians is going to happen, um, but he's going to do the Suicide Squad movie before he does Guardians 3, which means it'll be a while before we see Guardians 3. They'll be able to keep his script, but the cast has been pretty silent so far. I thought they'd be all over yeah, social media. I, I thought, especially Batista, I thought yeah. would be much more vocal about it. Um, so I don't know why, because they, they won. They I got a victory. Theory, though. Oh, what, what is your theory? Well, I mean, I, here's the thing. It's like, it's a very, it's a slippery slope almost to celebrate him coming back because then you're, and then people automatically assume that you're defending what he said, which is not at all what's happening here. But the problem is, is like, you know, in my personal opinion of the matter is he deserves to come back. People d- get better and become better people as they get older. You learn from your mistakes. I believe in second chances completely. Uh, and obviously those jokes were out there prior to Guardians 1 be even being made. He already apologized for them years ago. I do think that there's a element, though, when you when you get maybe overly excited about it, that people then, I don't know, think you're letting him slide for what he said, and then they'll remind you what he said. And then, obviously, the tweets were not good, so I don't know if that's why. I mean, it is weird. Every one of them is silent. But then on the flip side of that, they all wrote that letter, right? And they all signed mm-hmm. it yeah. um, to have him come back. So maybe it was just kind of, maybe they're just staying silent just to be, you know, this is just the way it should have been. I don't Possibly. Know. I don't know. But I thought I'd hear some more from them. So anyway, we don't know anything about a release date, about when it's coming. They'll finally be able to use his script. Um, it sounds like the next Marvel movie after Spider-Man Far From Home is going to be this Black Widow film. And if that's the case, it's going to be this May 2020 release date. And I find that to be an interesting movie to kick off the summer season with because it doesn't feel like it's going to be quite as big as an Avengers Endgame type movie. And so let's shift right over to that. Right after we recorded our most recent episode, number 60, uh, the next morning, the Avengers Endgame trailer dropped. Uh, Not a ton of new footage. And in fact, now the Russos have actually come out and said that some of the footage that they showed in that trailer might not actually be the way that it appears in the final movie. I find that to be pretty fascinating. But I think if any movie can get away with doing marketing trickery like that, it's this film. Uh, They actually relied on a lot of so much old footage Uh, in a black and white setting to set up the backstories of Tony Stark and Steve Rogers and Thor that PJ turned to me when I was showing him the trailer and he was like, is Endgame going to be in black and white? And I was like, no, this is just old. They're they're padding the trailer so they don't have to show you old footage. But um, I I got to say, though, I did, speaking of the pad, like, yes, they they did pad it. But it was kind of cool seeing all the old. It was a reminder of how far we've come. Oh, yeah. And it it didn't feel like oh, like, we don't really want to show you two and a half minutes of new footage, so we're going to pad the first minute with old... Like, it was... To me, it was sort of like a... Like, we're like we're here. Like, we're in this now. And look look where we began, and look where we are. I mean, even seeing Thor... Remember, like, how clean and polished he looked in that first movie? And then you cut to, and he's just... His hair is cut, and he's scarred, and he's got the... Pad. Like, it really was a reminder of, like, man, like, these, these guys and us have been through some stuff. Well, it's fascinating to me because obviously we all, we and kind of going back to James Gunn for a second with the Avengers uh, Infinity War, we know that James was a big part of uh, kind of dealing with the Guardians in, in Infinity War. So I am curious now by bringing him back, 
will it be revealed that he was actually also working on Endgame during that time period? Well, I mean, I, I didn't get to ask you guys this. What, real fast, what were your thoughts on James Gunn returning? Good or bad move? Oh, I think that's Great the only move. move. Great the move. only move. Yeah, they, yeah. they had to do that, essentially. Yeah. yeah. But so now, now that he's back, does that mean we learn that he was involved in Endgame? Well, so then Feige has come out and said, and I don't know how much of it I trust what Kevin Feige says at this between this and the release of the movie. He says this new film is really going to focus on the core original Avengers. Like it might be the majority of them and the dusted people might not come back until late in the film. And so if that's the case, then Gunn wouldn't have to do much with Guardians in Endgame yeah. anyway. They also yeah, especially because remember Rocket is the only member of the Guardians that is quote unquote alive. Yes. So we don't really need, yeah, depending on how much they're in it. Um, I don't really think we really so need I, them. I saw a great tweet that kind of like bummed me out a little bit. I thought, and I thought it was an interesting thing because we live in a world where we we get so much information about movies. And like when slates get announced and things like that, um, does it ruin the timeline of what you expect from the next movie? Yeah. And if there's, if there's a Guardians 3 film, you know, Gamora's death in N- or Infinity War is a gigantic sequence that I don't necessarily want to see them turn around because it's it is a massive emotion. I mean, I love Gamora, but returning that or flipping that backwards would be, in my opinion, just kind of cheap. Like yeah. it would be like it, it, so. I don't know if that means like does that is Guardians three going to be a prequel? I don't know what they're going to. That do was with my it. understanding though, and I don't know where where that my that understanding came from. But I was under the impression that Guardians three was going to take place before. Infinity uh, War. Infinity War. That would okay. be interesting. I mean, and again, but, it also doesn't give it any stakes. Yeah, that, that's what's weird. Like that's that's why I think when we all watched Infinity War for the first time, in my opinion, it was the first time you actually thought the Avengers could get killed. Yeah. Like it wasn't. There wasn't any type of like in my mind when you watch the other ones. Yeah, they're gonna they're gonna go on. It's gonna be fine after New York and Avengers one. They're not gonna kill off Iron Man, whatever. But in in, in Infinity War, it was a the, every fight with Thanos was was scary. So, like, I think when you take the stakes out of it, if, if that's what I'm a little concerned about. But also, kind of going back to the Endgame trailer, the Russos are amazing and at misdirect, right? Misdirecting their audience. Um, and I thought it was cool, the black and white stuff, as you mentioned. It was, it was yeah, like like Jake said, it was like this, like, memory of how, how many years has this been now? This has been 11, 11. years. 11. Yeah. I rewatched Iron Man 1 over the weekend, which, by the way, is an incredible film. It still holds up top five MCU for me. Uh, and I just, it is crazy where we are now. It's right. unbelievable where we are now. So Even just, like, the tone and the feel. Uh, I mean, to the point where I feel like saying that Captain Marvel feels like a phase one Marvel movie. Oh, yeah. It almost yes. feels like Very an insult. So. <clears throat> because we've come so far, doesn't make it. I'm not saying that it feels like a bad movie, but feeling saying that it feels like Phase One is kind of an insult because of how good they are now. Right. But Phase and, One, Iron Man One, is better than most Phase Two and Three films, in my opinion. I think I think Iron Man One's top five. It's I have a question an, for you guys. Amazing movie. What is the shot in the in-game trailer that you think is not in the movie? Because didn't the Russos say that like there is some stuff in the trailer? It's not much like the scene with the Hulk running through Wakanda. Well, in the okay, War so trailer. I'll say it's them marching through the Avengers um, headquarters in the suit. That's what makes me think too. Just just because it's very it's a very similar kind of yeah. deal to and and everybody be, focused on who's there and they focus on who isn't exactly. Yeah, exactly. Sean, do you have any intel as to what happened with the poster situation? 
Uh, I, I thought that was such an interesting story. So when the Avengers Endgame poster was released last week, um, right. there were 13 characters on the poster, 12 names at the top. <laughs> well, yeah. the one name that was missing was Denai Guerrera. Um, but it was weird because it was oddly specific. Like you had Bradley Cooper as Rocket, you had Josh Brolin as Thanos, you had every actor who was on that poster living was up there at the top except yeah. for her. I mean, what happened? I have no they intel, fixed it. but they, they fixed, fixed it. it the next morning. Because Which, of the backlash. Yeah, and it makes me think that truly just someone in the marketing department made a mistake. Like what they do you just think happened to that it. person? Yeah, I think they got chewed out. And they I don't think it was an intentional slight, and she's on the poster. See, I I do. Do you Why? really? I, I do think oh. it was an intentional slight. I think that whoever this person was would make the argument that she is still not a household name. I'm not saying that was the right decision, but I think that that was... Like well, they'll sure, put, but then even don't though, even put her on the poster. Then don't include her face. But like, here's the deal: I think I think that they think that we as an audience like her because right. we liked her in Black Panther and we liked her in Avengers, but that we don't know her name. Therefore, the name does. As opposed to even though even if people don't know that Bradley Cooper is Rocket, they're right. still going to put his name on the poster because it's freaking Bradley Cooper. I think that was an intentional slight. And then because of the backlash, they went back and changed it. Oscar loser Bradley Cooper. I think that's how we have to refer to him now. Wait, but I have a question for you. How many? Isn't it like eight-time Oscar loser Bradley Cooper (laughs) at this point? I have a question about your theory, though. Because if your theory is that it wasn't a household name, uh, then hold on. Let me find. Was Karen Gillan on the poster? Yeah. No one knows who Karen Gillan is. She's not a household name. was Was she on the poster? Yeah. She's right there on the poster. She's sitting right there, and her name's at the top. So Someone, Karen Gillan's on the poster. So, but, but I just I'm not I'm not trying to uh, say you're wrong, Jake. I just think my point the point is if it's if it was because she wasn't a household name, Karen Gillan is just as least famous as Denai Guerrero in regards. If I'm Denai Guerrero, my, my, my feelings are hurt by this. If I'm Denai Guerrero, I'm like what the hell. I was in Black do, Panther. Do you think like I'm do you think she dead. was even phased by it? Oh, I would be sure. Yeah, Absolutely. that was a little weird. But her name was in the bottom credits. So yeah. like, but also keep in mind, like, actors' names on posters and placements on posters is oftentimes a contractual thing. Absolutely. Right. And, you know, who gets to go first and who gets the and this or with this, a lot of time that's that's worked out by agents. Yep. So that may not have even really been a studio thing as much as maybe her agent didn't fight for it as much as Karen uh, Karen's agent but I mean, like, but, but Jake's right though. One of the frustrating things about posters is oh, that's seeing, a pet peeve that flips. Like, you'll have two people. Actually, wait. I have. I'm trying to think back to the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood poster. Are there names at the top right now? Okay, you know a good example in theaters right now. Uh, the Best of Enemies poster is okay. there's there's one poster where Sam Rockwell is on the left and Taraji P Henson's on the right, and the names are reversed. And it drives me nuts. I mean, it drives me why nuts. Can't they, why can't they? And I they, get, I get. If like, if Taraji's name needs to go first, I get it. It's a contractual thing. But flip you know, them. Then, then put her on the other side of the poster. Maybe I that's do an artistic not that hard. It's an artistic why, choice. Why though? You're, I mean, Jake's so. Well, it's right. the wrong it's, artistic it choice. It is so frustrating <laughs> looking at a poster like that and like right. seeing. Look at the Triple Frontier poster. I think they're all their names are like shifted. It's yeah. very weird. Just move them. In the right spot. Um, Gabe, if I'll you ever do a poster you. of the three members of Real Blend, please yeah. don't put our names. Please, just to, just to tick off Kevin, put, uh, put <laughs> like my name's on top of Sean's and Sean's <laughs> name on top of Kevin. So, I'll so tell you what's really... really weird. Kevin, how many times did you watch the trailer today for Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? 
Seven. Why? Only seven? Why? <laughs> Only seven. Uh, Why? Let's, let's get into that trailer. Why not? Uh, it's a beautiful... It, the footage It's going to be trailer. a great movie. It's not a great trailer, dude. It's a great trailer. It, there's nothing special about that. Like, like I'm excited for it, and it was great to see the, the, some first footage, but there's nothing particularly special about that trailer. Disagree. It's, you know first what the, of all, well, it's ahead, the first footage we've seen. Uh, okay, okay, I get that. So, so disregard that. We're talking about the actual... Forget the fact that it's the first yeah. footage you've seen. The actual trailer... It's great. I love the opening. How? I love the aspect ratio of the black and white interview they're doing in the '60s. I love the I love the way that it's cut together with the song. I love how I love how they're all introduced. I love the dialogue that was chosen for the trailer. I mean, Quentin Tarantino's only directed nine movies, including Kill Bill's one film. Um, so I, I uh, <laughs> it's true. It is true though. <laughs> it is that one in there. Why do you hate yeah. me? But it is true. I mean, Quentin Tarantino's right to die movies and kill Bill. To be fair, that was the best part of the trailer whenever it said the ninth film by Quentin Tarantino. And it was so big, too. It it was like all of America just turned around and looked at Sean. Yeah. Yeah, it literally says the ninth film from Quentin Tarantino. So pretentious. Um, it's but so Sean pretentious. still disagrees that Kill Bill is one, <laughs> uh, two movies. Uh, it's one movie. Anyway, what so does my, my Leo point, say at the end of the movie? What does Leo say at the end of the trailer? His, his name with the with the F word in between the first and the last name. Oh, does it really? Okay. Yeah, like, is it like Rick F and Dalton or something That's like right. that. Does he really? Yeah, he like says his name like Yeah. All right, I didn't get that. So what? So what's the? What do you think the point of that shot is? Having that girl say that to him. Uh, you know, I don't that's know. That's the best acting I've ever seen. Like, I'm, I wonder what that means. I I was under the impression that the, that the two guys they're playing, and again, I'm with Jake on this aspect. It doesn't if it if I just saw that trailer and didn't know it was a Tarantino film, it wouldn't do much to get me excited because it doesn't set up the story necessarily at all and it buries the Manson stuff, which I thought was important to the story. I don't but think may not it's not be. a Manson movie though. Yeah, it may it's not be. Like, People have been confusing this as a Charles Manson film. It's not a Charles Manson movie. It's about it's about an actor and his stunt double living in a time period where Manson exists. Okay, so the, so what is? Do we know what the actual plot is? No, I don't. But I don't no. think it's a Manson movie. I don't think the movie. I don't. I mean, the they live next door to Sharon that. Tate, so right. It's it's. I mean, you don't live next door to the most famous victim of Manson's murders without Manson being a pretty big part of the movie. Oh, it's going to be a part of the film, but I, I think people are confusing it. Because people are saying now, people are tweeting me saying, this is not, why are we making another Manson movie? This is not a Manson movie. And I also, I was trying to figure this out today when I was, when I was um, driving home. So in the trailer, so DiCaprio's character is fictional, correct? Obviously. Right? I believe so. And, and as is uh, Brad Pitt. So yeah. is Bruce Lee really Bruce Lee? I think it's really Bruce Lee. Yeah. So they're inter- I, th- I think it's sort of like a Inglorious Bastards <laughs> thing where they're kind of messing with history. Okay. The Bruce Lee interpretation is it's great. perfect. Yeah, that great. line that he says, he goes, my leg or my body's a lethal weapon if I kill you. And then, and then Brad Pitt goes, um, well, that'd be manslaughter or something like that. That was hilarious. I mean, it was everything I expected from a Quentin Tarantino movie, Robert Richardson's amazing cinematography, uh, the, the ridiculously crazy, awesome dialogue. There was, it was extremely violent in certain aspects. I mean, there's like some shootout sequences. I mean, it basically had, and it also had an awesome soundtrack. It was almost like a mini Tarantino movie. But see, like, here's here's the thing: is I feel like you're 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 not seeing the forest for the trees because, like, individually, like, yeah, like all the scenes they look great. Looks like top tier Tarantino. The dialogue looks great. But as a trailer, I didn't think the trailer was particularly well crafted. Why? It was cool how they opened it with the interview. They were like in because a Because it didn't make me it was... want to see the movie any more than I already do. Well, that's a personal thing. 
That's the, well, I know. That's me, that's, me, that's meaning you have a, a you have a certain level of excitement for the film. Yeah, but I have a level of excitement for Endgame, and the, and that latest trailer got me even more pumped than I see. Was. I disagree. I think the Endgame trailer is fine. It's it's not anything special. It's fine. Like it's a good trailer, but that Endgame trailer. What in that trailer was mind blowing? Not and it was all old footage. It was a, it's a cool trailer. Don't get me wrong. I liked the tone of it, but. I saw, I think the best word I saw for it online was it was underwhelming. It was an underwhelming trailer. They didn't really wanna, give, you it, give you anything. I want to read off some of the names of people who are in Quentin's cast who have not shown up, who didn't show up in the trailer. And actually, Kevin, I think that that director who says cut um, is Tim Roth. Oh, see, I thought it was Quentin Tarantino when I first saw it. I think it's Tim Roth, but I don't know. Because now they see that Tim Roth is in it. Uh, Kevin Smith's daughter, Harley Quinn Smith, is in this movie. Oh, wow. <laughs> didn't know that. Martin Cove, the great Martin Cove from Karate Kid, who I met recently in this movie. Bruce Dern, Lena Dunham, Zoe Bell from Death Proof. Uh, Rumor Willis, Bruce Willis's daughter's in this. Scoot McNary, James Marsden, Kurt Russell, uh, Damian Lewis playing Steve McQueen, Emile Hirsch, Tim Roth, Al Pacino, uh, Dakota Fanning is playing Squeaky Fromm. Timothy Oliphant. Last Luke, Luke performance. Perry. Oh, Luke Perry's in this too? That's right. Yeah. That's his right. last performance. Timothy Oliphant. Timothy so Oliphant's I'm with, I'm with, you know, Kevin in that it, 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 it's fine. It set the stage for it and it doesn't almost have to show me anything else. I don't, I don't need another trailer. It's Tarantino. I'm in. I'm in. So. And that's the thing. I was already in too. Like, it's, it's not like, it's not like I'm saying, oh, because I wasn't a massive fan of the trailer that I think it's going to yeah. be a crap movie. I think it's going to be a fantastic movie. <laughs> I just don't think there's anything particularly great about the trailer. Right. I, mean, I, I mean, let me preface this. Quentin Tarantino is my favorite director living today. Um, uh, passed away filmmaker would be Hitchcock. But I mean, like to give you, uh, I'll, I'll keep this quick, but to More give- More than Nolan? Yeah, he's my favorite director. Dude, Quentin Tarantino, I've spent, I took Japanese in college because of Kill Bill, which was the hardest language I ever took in my entire life. <laughs> I um, imported or bought the actual Kill Bill Sorry, I, I feel terrible saying these words. Volume one um, version from Japan. <laughs> um, so I, I because oh, what happened was the first, the first Kill Bill story. movie. The first in a Kill famous in a famous story, Quentin Tarantino turns the House of Blue Leaves scene into or the the you know, the scene where she fights and kills everybody black and white uh, into black and white because the MPAA, from what I understand, wouldn't let him spray the blood. Right. So the Japanese version of that DVD had the scene in full color, and this is before, like, YouTube, so I couldn't watch it, and I wanted to see the full-color version of it. Um, I went out and bought every color of uh, Reservoir Dogs when they released the special editions. I got Mr. Brown, I got Mr. White, I got Mr. Blonde, I got everything. Uh, I own five copies of Pulp Fiction. I remember (laughs) buying a Canadian, or no, I ended up getting another copy of Pulp Fiction just so I could get the Jackrabbit Slim's menu. That came with it. They made it. They, they, so I, I had that one. I yeah. And I before that, I bought a Canadian one because it had some deleted scenes or something like that. And then my posters in my house when I was growing up as a kid were Reservoir Dogs, Mr. White, the line that he says, which I think is a Muhammad Ali reference about if you shoot me in a dream, you better wake up and apologize, which is one of yeah, the greatest yeah. lines ever. I think it's a Muhammad Ali um, if you punch me in a dream or something like that or knock me out in a dream. Um, but I had that poster on my wall, Pulp Fiction poster on my wall. So it's... Any footage I'm given from a new Quentin Tarantino movie is going to excite me, but I do think it was a well-structured trailer. I really do. But I also find... I understand where Jake's coming from, but I also... He only directed nine movies, so it's like... 
and he's been directing since 90, what, 91, 92? We haven't gotten a lot of films from him. So when you get a trailer from him, it's a big deal. Isn't he opinion. stopping at 10 also? Yeah, which, I, which, by the way, I think at some point we should get into that topic on the show because I think it's a very fascinating discussion because um, I believe, if I'm, I'll paraphrase, I believe Quentin Tarantino's opinion is I'll stop at 10 while I'm in my prime because I don't want to start making bad films later in my career. And I think you, you, even if you go back to people like Hitchcock or even Coppola now, they, they don't start making great films. Uh, again, I'm not saying you should stop, but Quentin's point is that I want to stop in my prime. Well, but... Which is interesting. I'll use right? Ridley as an example of, of that being wrong. Because, mm. you know, yes, he makes some movies that don't work to me, but then we wouldn't have The Martian. Yeah, but see, Quentin... Look at Scorsese. But, yeah, but but Scorsese, what sure. was the last? I mean, besides Silence, how many movies are we getting from him every like every three or four years? We're getting a new Scorsese movie. Like I feel like Quentin Tarantino could still direct. The problem is when directors pump out a movie a year. I would it, love it, to it, look at Scorsese's filmography and realize how many movies we'd be gypped of if he stopped at ten. Like yeah, that would be no, fascinating. It's, it's, a good, it's a good point. But also remember, Quentin Tarantino has only done nine movies in what. 25 years is that however long this has been so he's i mean we're not going to get his 10th movie until what 2025 so that there's a lot of time that's still going to pass he takes his time writing his scripts um i'm so happy the hateful eight actually got made remember that whole thing when that script leaked and then did they that movie almost didn't get made oh yeah it was like it was crazy so and hateful eight is one of my least favorite of his movies even though i still love it um but you know that's why to me, the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood trailer was a return to form of what I know Quentin as, and that cinematography from Robert Richardson. By the way, I do have a question. When they walk out of the bathroom in the trailer, and it says ladies, does that mean they were in the ladies' room? I didn't even notice that. I don't that. remember that shot. I only watched the trailer once. Oh, man. I've watched it like, I've watched it seven times, because I, I <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. I, I loved it. I loved every aspect of that trailer. All right. We will talk about this movie as we get closer to release, obviously. As of 12.02 a.m. on March 20th, the Disney and Fox merger is officially complete, and Disney wasted no time before putting at the top of their uh, official website a, a graphic or an image that had uh, a, a mic drop of an announcement uh, to me, which was Star Wars, Pixar, um Avatar, Marvel, uh, just, you know, all of the, the Simpsons, uh, MLB baseball, like it was just, it's, it's this behemoth of a company now, and we're still going to figure out how everything shakes out uh, between now and when uh, everything's finalized. But um, what do you guys think now that it's officially done? I'm actually kind of bummed. Yeah. Uh, thinking about the fact that we're never going to hear that, uh, that pop and circumstance of the, the Fox theme. Right. Before a movie plays, I mean that that logo, that music played before some of my favorite movies that I ever watched in my entire life, including Star Wars. Right. Um, and and you know, I, a lot of times, and and I, I know we also get we get wrapped in in, in this uh, because we're a movie podcast. You know, I know people get excited about the idea that oh, you know, Disney now owns X Men, so X Men can be a part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But from a human standpoint, there are thousands of people who are losing their jobs. And I, and that, and I can't, I have a hard time getting excited about the fact that X-Men get to play in the same sandbox as the Avengers. When I think about the fact that there are a lot of people who are, who now have no jobs. Right. And you know, th- this was one of the, the six major studios that, uh, writers could pitch their ideas to, you know, and now we, we lost, we lost one. This is one less 
outlet to hear fun, creative ideas. Right. And my dog is very upset about it. Very Daenerys is very upset. Very upset upset by this. So I think think losing one table of ears that could hear the next great idea is never a good thing. You know? Um, So... Yes, X-Men get to now play with the Avengers, and that's all fun, well, and good. But there is a deeply personal uh, and and deep-rooted negative effect to this that I'm not super psyched about. Yeah, on a personal level, kind of what Jake is talking about, um, we work in uh, the junket world, so we have gotten to know and become really great friends with a lot of people who work at 20th Century Fox. Um, I mean, I even invited a a few of them to my wedding because they've been such a gigantic part of my life. So... It's it's an interesting thing because like yes I I understand the concept of why it's being done um, but personally as a human being I'm I'm, a, I'm sad to see that studio go away and those people and I and I understand I don't want to get into you know specifics but I know some of them are going to get new jobs and they've moved to different studios or whatever it is but there's something about getting I, I can't get excited about it right now because I'm it's an emotional thing for me. And I kind of like what Jake said with that logo. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm really going to miss that logo as well. On the, on the flip side of that, is it too much power for Disney? Yeah. Yes. It's a lot. That's the other thing I'm worried about. Is it too much power to have one studio have all that content? Like, it, it, that worries me a little bit. I mean, it's it, and, and a lot of it is positioned to not just to give them franchises and major tentpoles, but it's the streaming service, which is where we're all heading, essentially. Like, you have to have a powerful streaming service with a massive library. And if Disney Plus is going to lure you in with all of the, the Disney projects, they also want to lure you in with all of the major Fox projects as well, too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I agree and- with you guys. When you start to see the list of major studios... And it shrinks by one, and not not a small not one. Not just one, a big one. A significant one, right, exactly. Yeah, and, and here's the thing. Change is inevitable. Sure. Uh, I don't like change. We, I don't think a lot of people do like change. I know people. some people take it and they, and they, and they run with it. Uh, I would imagine that this decision has been made for a good reason that we don't, maybe don't know yet or aren't aware of in regards to um, financial decisions and or properties and, and movies. I mean, clearly... I mean, like, people like Ryan Reynolds are, like, having kind of having joking fun with it. Like, when he posted that picture the other day of him in the in the school bus with the Disney thing. Yeah. Um, you know, so it, it's weird because we are so close to this business that we know people who are affected. And that's why it's hard to give an opinion without having a, an emotional bias sure. uh, in regards to that. But, I, you know, listen, I'll, I'll say this. You know, Disney is a great company. And, 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 and they actually make good products. So it's not like it's going somewhere bad, um, but there is the idea that, yeah, that's a lot of power for one studio to take. Uh, and we we know people who are affected by it, Jake and I, and Sean too. Personally. But also to be fair, you shouldn't have to personally know people to right. not be a fan of the idea of the fact that thousands of people are losing their jobs. Whether oh, yeah, I know agree. someone that works at 20th Century Fox or not should be of no qu- consequence. <laughs> but and adds you know, and you're, yeah, and you're allowed, people are, don't get me wrong, people are allowed to be excited about the fact that the, the X-Men are part of, of Marvel. And that's, and that's fine. I'm not, I'm not knocking people for being excited about that because this is a movie podcast. But you also have to acknowledge that there is a, an inherent downside to this happening. Well, I know we and have it's to. A very human. We got to move. Um, but but the part that I hope happens is that all this work still has to be done at Disney. <laughs> it's not like Disney has an army of publicists and marketing people who are looking for stuff to do, and now they get all the Fox stuff, and they're like, "Oh, great! 
You know, <laughs> finally we have projects to work on. So I hope Disney brings a, a good chunk of them over with them, but that's what we'll find out. I Can I ask a question? Sure. When Star Wars opens up, when sort of Star Wars film hits the screen, we don't see a Disney logo, right? We see a Lucasfilm logo pop up and that's it. Right. So I don't understand why Disney, it, it, maybe they are going to do this. Why couldn't they just move the film division into their company and then keep the logos, keep the employees, well, keep the studio? My, my point being is that like you bought Lucasfilm and there's no Disney logo on that movie at all. But so I why read can't somewhere just, too that they may still make um, Fox movies under a Fox banner, like well, it might be, still be just amazing. be called Fox. Well, then, then, then that 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 I would be excited. Like for. to I this like- point, you're you're not going to see the Disney logo in front of Deadpool three because they don't wouldn't want that you to think of that as a Disney movie. So what happens to something like Dark Phoenix? So right now we're sitting here. Dark Phoenix is opening up this year. It's a 20th century Fox film. Yeah, who promotes that movie? I believe Fox. I believe they finish out. They'll probably have an X amount yeah. of, and Dark Phoenix may they be all, the they last one. They also still have that Ferrari movie coming out this year. I, yeah, I think Fox still. I think they probably, I'd imagine, they have a skeleton crew and New Mutants, to, which won't hit yeah. theaters. I don't think. So they're so so so. You think Fox will continue to promote and finish this year's slate? Yes. Interesting. I think so. All right, this week in movies, uh, have either of you guys seen Hotel Mumbai? I have. Is it any good? Um, you know, I did like it. I was not super familiar with uh, what happened. The, they, this follows uh, a four-day string of terrorist attacks that happened in Mumbai uh, in 2008. And this uh, follows specifically the terrorists that went into the Taj Mahal Hotel and essentially kept a, a lot of the, the hotel guests and staff basically hostage for, uh, for four days. And uh, some of the characters in the movie are, are, are based on real life people. Uh, a lot of them are amalgamations of, of several different people. Um, it's brutal, man. It is it is a rough movie. It does not hide the um, the barbarity and the violence that occurred within those walls. Um, but you know, I one of the things I, I got to interview the cast, and one of the things that I talked to them about is unfortunately every time, and it's more often than unfortunately than, than I think any of us would like. Every time a terrorist attack happens, I always think back to that uh, Mr. Rogers quote where he talks about something his mother told him, which is look for the helpers, that there are always going to be people helping in the bad times. And one of the things that the movie really does a really good job of is showing that the worst of humanity oftentimes brings out the best of humanity. There are a lot of people that had, that had the chance to walk out and escape and they said, no, like we, we, we can't leave these other people behind. And in that sense, good will always win. There, there will always be more good people on this planet than there are bad people. And, and there are a lot of bad things that happen in this world. And Hotel Mumbai is a good reminder that, you know what, doesn't matter how many bad things happen, good people will win and will stand up. And it's a, it's a really, really well, uh, well done, well produced, well shot, well acted version of that ideal, which I think is an important ideal, especially with what's going on right now. Yeah, I saw your, I saw your, I actually saw that interview clip because I, I remember, I think it came up in my feed and like you asked that question to Army and Dev, I think. And that was such a fascinating thing because it is so true um, that you, uh, in regards to whatever disaster occurs, whether it be a natural disaster or a terrorist attack, uh, you do see the heart of humanity. And unfortunately, that comes out by the worst things happening, unfortunately. Uh, but it is a reminder of how good people can be. So I think it's, a, it's such a fascinating uh, duality or juxtaposition 
that something has to occur that horribly to kind of show or remind us how good people can be. And, you but know, it's also too. There's recently, something um, hopeful about that because whenever yeah. you know you you can never plan for how you're going to act in a situation like that. And the fact that without thinking, so oftentimes people's instinctive reaction is to do something good and to do something heroic. I think that says a lot about us as a oh, society, yeah. as, a, as a human race. And, and <laughs> you know, obviously the timeliness of the New Zealand uh, element, which was you know a very scary thing. We were just I, mean, I was just in New Zealand. Jake was as well, and. Uh, not that we were near that spot, but it was, you know, it was uh, horrifying. And like that happened right before Jake, I believe you did your interview. So it was like an interesting, uh, timeliness there. All right. Speaking about a movie that speaks to a lot of things going on in our culture at the moment, Jordan Peele returns to theaters with his follow-up to get out. We will now take on the very daunting task of talking about us without revealing anything about us. Um, I'll, this is tough. This is harder than you guys will think. Um, let's just basically go through, do we recommend it? I think all three of us highly recommend seeing it, correct? Without question, 100%. Yes. Okay. I'd even go so far as to say we all recommend seeing it more than once. Without question, 100%. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Kevin, as someone who has, you're the only one of the three of us who's seen it twice, uh, try to explain why a repeat viewing, it, it's to me similar to Get Out in that once you understood the big picture, uh, the second viewing and third viewing and, and all your repeat viewings have different, uh, have, they have different interpretations or meanings. Yes. So I've seen us twice and again, no spoilers, but the second version of the showing I saw was a completely different film. Uh, I felt like an investigator or a detective uh, searching for clues, but uh, I'll use get out as an example as to why the second viewing of us is so great. Get Out was a film that on its own, its first viewing was brilliant. I mean, in regards to just the the, the messages it sent about racism, uh, that entire switch and reveal and twist at the end. But then when you go back and watch Get Out, it's the things he put in there for you later to see that were truly brilliant. And I think the, 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 the metaphor to me that I always bring up that I think is probably one of the most profound things I've seen in a film ever is the chair. Uh, metaphor from Get Out, and mm. we've talked. I think we discussed this before, but for people who aren't familiar, uh, the scene at the end when Daniel Kaluuya is in the chair, Jordan Peele actually took the stuffing out of the chair and put cotton in the chair to have the metaphor of a black man picking cotton to save his own life, and that is something you don't get on the first viewing. That is such a gigantically profound, brilliant statement that is probably going to be lost on a lot of people who only see the movie one time. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's an interesting thing that you have something that's like, that's like genius level moment that you hope people may see on the second, third, fourth, fifth viewing later. And so us going back to us, it's the same thing in, in regards to those types of Easter eggs and, um, metaphors and moments on the second viewing, the things you pick up on are incredible. And there is, like, I, I had the amazing opportunity to interview the cast, and Lupita Nyongo told me something that just blew my mind. Like, they would be on set, and they would actually have discussions about the temperature of the scene in regards to the person's next viewing. So, mm-hmm. like, Lupita would talk That's to so Jordan. so interesting. Lupita would talk to Jordan and go, Jordan, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but it would be like, yeah, do that because that's going to be picked up on the second time they watch it. Right. I mean, think about the the 
as a director to think about your movie in two ways. Get out as right. a get out as two different movies. Get out as the movie you saw first before the twist, and then get out as another movie after you watch it again. And us is the same thing in regards you know what, to I'm very, the differences. I'm worried about him being uh, tasked with having to deliver that each time. <laughs> uh, it's the Shyamalan curse of you know his early films between Village and Signs and Sixth Sense, obviously, that every everybody came to anticipate the Shyamalan twist. And I just don't know how often Jordan can do this. Like, how many times is he going to be able to deliver such a layered story with so many rewards, you know, that are that are weaved in? Like, eventually but he's us- going to give us a movie that just works. And I want to say about Us also, just on a surface level, it's an entertaining film from start to finish if you don't give a crap about the metaphors. I still think that it it's a fun horror movie with some really great scares and an amazing set of performances. Yeah, and the thing about us for for me, which is interesting, is it's a completely different film than Get Out. It's not the same yeah. thing as Get Out whatsoever, and it is a gigantically hard R-rated brutal horror film. I mean, it is. I mean, it's brutal, but also the second viewing made me appreciate the comedy of it even more. And Gabe, we were all texting last night about the tone of this film. The push pull on the on the comedy and horror in this thing is genius like he all the way through the end it doesn't yeah. it's not like it's funny at the beginning and, no. then, and then it disperses it, it stays yeah. funny through the end you'll be in the middle of a of a horrifying sequence and then he'll crack a joke but it's yeah. but it but it's done with not in per- a last jedi kind of way no but don't precision <laughs> though right yeah like yeah exactly last jedi was like an snl sketch like he'll pop a joke almost to like it almost releases you for a second and then he brings you back and yeah. it's like very the the wave last night. Like last night, I was really in the second viewing. I was very uh, adamant about focusing and looking for things. So I, last night, I I watched specific characters, just just their just their lines. Um, and but the wave of laughter and horror is perfect. I I, I and that's a very very hard balance to find. And I don't. Yeah. And, and he's an amazing writer. But the thing about it is it doesn't strike me as one of those movies where seeing it with a crowd is going to enhance it. I almost think a crowd is going to distract. Like uh, they, uh, No, crowd no? enhanced it for me. Really? You saw it with okay. a huge crowd, didn't you, in South By? I did, and it annoyed me a bit at how they laughed at places where I didn't think they were supposed to laugh. And That's maybe all, they uh, were breaking tension. Uncomfortable laughter. That's what that yeah, is. Maybe. Like, maybe. like I, I, I was in a theater last night, and people were laughing at some pretty horribly violent stuff. Right. Because... They're not comfortable with what they're seeing. I mean, you think about that home invasion sequence, which is in the trailers. It's not a spoiler. You know that they're they're uh, being invaded by their doppelgangers. But that scene is so hard to watch on the first viewing. It is like the way he shoots that sequence, the tension of them coming into the house, just walking into the house is so scary to me. Um, But yeah, anyways. So I'm going to throw out. My issue with the movie. Can and you do that? We, Are you we, able to we've do that? Been, I think so. All right. And and this has come up. Uh, we, we, it's been an ongoing text thread between all four of us on the show. We had and, an uh, epic text <laughs> thread. And, and, and before I get going. this morning. Gabe, when you all, woke up this yeah. morning, how many messages were waiting for you? Oh, hundreds. Gabe's phone. Do you remember the poor number? Gabe's phone. Because <laughs> we're all up very early for work and everything. Uh, and that being said, before I get into this, let me just say I very, very, very much like this movie. And the more I mm-hmm. think about it, the more I like it. Here's where I run into an issue with it is that 
after the movie was over, we all go into a deep dive of what it means, the deeper mm-hmm. themes, the deeper metaphors, and there are a lot there. Kevin was bringing up a lot of points that I didn't think about. Sean was bringing up a lot of points that I didn't think about. I'd like to think that I brought up a few things that, that they hadn't yep. thought about. I yep. mean, there were some some really, there is a lot to chew on with this movie. But Sean made the, the point earlier where, you know, you take away the themes and it's still a damn good horror film. Yep. But I want to say... My issue is that you take away the themes, take away the bigger picture, take away really what makes this movie uh, important in a lot of ways. And you, you and you just look at the basic plot line. What is it about on the surface? Yeah. That plot line asks more questions than it gives answers to. And there are a lot of aspects. You're going to walk out of this film with a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. And I'm not entirely sure the answers are in there. And that bothers me. And that and that's where it's going to divide people. And this is where it divided, I think, myself and Sean against maybe Kevin and Gabe, which is I needed answers to certain things and not getting them made it feel like a cop-out. And Kevin and what I think Gabe were okay with not getting the answers to certain things. And, and so at that point, it just depends on – no person's right, no person's wrong. It depends on what camp you fall into. There are, and, and you'll understand what all this means after you see the movie. But you're going to be told a lot of things a bit like the tip of the iceberg. And, you're gonna, and you might go, okay, but what about X, Y, and Z? And you're not going to get the answers to it. And you have to be okay with that in order, in my opinion, to truly call it a masterpiece. So I can't call this movie a masterpiece because I'm hung up on a lot of small details that to me are actually important storytelling aspects that that Jordan Peele didn't explore enough. And I don't think it's fair that he introduced a lot of things without without giving answers to it. And that's, my that's, argument that's my roundabout. I'm sure that made no sense whatsoever no, if you haven't seen the movie. But that's my roundabout but, non-spoiler way of trying to explain my one hang-up. I mean, we're talking about like the difference between a half point or a one point in, in, in my very positive review. But, yeah, but that is but it is a big hang-up for me. What's fascinating and, and it's that big butt, like that butt in there is interesting because uh, I've seen it twice and I am perfectly settled into how I feel about the the overarching plot but of this you, film. But you do accept, having seen it twice, you do accept that that I propose questions to you that there are that are not answered in the film. Yeah. That, let me that, ask that, let me ask that, you a that, question. Yes. Is Inception a dream or not? That's different. See, no, see, answer me that. No. Answer me that question. <laughs> answer me that question. Is Inception You're, a dream or not? You do we don't know the answer to that. What that's so, that's that not makes, like that's the whole point of the movie is dreams. How do I do this? No, that would be like explaining, uh, like Inception, not explaining how they go into how the whole dream within a dream concept works, and then just going, "Trust me, it's a thing." But they, you don't really actually technically know how a dream works in that movie. I mean, like, you, they, I, I, I you, don't think you I don't think that the top wobbling. That, Sean, back me up. The top wobbling, and you having to decide thing. is nowhere near the weight yes, of what is. is not explained in us. It is not, dude. Sean, I don't think we. Not. I don't think we can go this far. I think we're going too yeah, far. Yeah, we got. We got. We got to stop. I we think gotta, we're we, going we, too we far. Really stop. We we're will have. The, we can have this conversation next week. Like once people see it, we can get into deeper details. I don't. I understand what both of you are saying. Nothing we've said, by the way, has no. been a spoiler. Nope. So no. we're good. But we're here, getting close. But let's go back to reactions. Sean. Yes. React to the oh, movie. I think it's great. Um, and I I'll even say I like it more than get out. And I've said this. Um I've I like the 
I like I like the I like where us goes um, more than I liked. I, I can talk about that more. I, I'll talk about it a little more. What I'll say is, f- the day after I saw it, um, I talked about it with people at South by and thought about it for days after. Kevin has said this already. The minute he was able to see it. Uh, he texted me and I immediately hopped on the phone with him because I knew he For had talked about it. Yeah. At like at one midnight. in the morning. At one in the morning. And, yeah. and I just knew because it's the kind of movie where the minute you see it, you immediately want to start discussing it um, with someone else who has seen it. It's just it, it's that compelling of a story. And so because of that, and Kevin even said that at one point in the text, he's like, what's the last movie that we discussed this much, like with with this much passion? It's 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 that type of movie it's really that good and also and it's kind of stunning to me that jordan is only on his second movie and is is delivering at this level that's insane to me so my my normal drive so my second viewing last night my, my normal drive home with my wife lauren after a movie is me on my phone preparing my work for the next day because by the time i get home i want to go to sleep because you know we go to the movies we get home at 10 o'clock i get up at 4 30 so i basically get my email work done based on whatever news stories are happening at that moment sent to, uh, to my bosses uh so because the movie was so uh, just what sean just said we spent the entire 40 minute car ride I didn't blink an eye we just talked the entire time about every aspect of this movie and i can't remember the last time that I did that. And I'm not saying like my wife and I don't talk on the way home, but you know, I'm on my phone working, but I mean, that says something that's pretty phenomenal. And then you and I and Jake and Gabe were texting till 1130 last night, even though I probably should have been in bed by 1030. You know what I mean? So it was like, and I, and Lauren was like, we were back on it at at, at like six. Lauren was like, Kevin, go to sleep. (laughs) Yeah. Lauren said, Kevin, go to sleep. I said, no, I, I've been waiting a week to hear from Jake and Gabe on this. I I need to know what they thought. It's the most fun. I will say it's the most fun I've had discussing. And at least what's nice about it is that like, we're all coming from a place of, of loving this movie. Right. We're really splitting hairs. I right. mean, like whenever, whenever I say that, like we were arguing about things, I mean, we're talking about the difference between one person that might give it a five and one person that might give it a four and a half. It's not like we're arguing whether or not it's good. Right. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's coming from a yeah. place of like, this is a great, no, but we're in the film. realm now where we're trying to, the three of us, four of us are trying to figure out, um, when, when we deem something like this is a masterpiece, this is something we're going to be celebrating for, like when you bring up Inception, you know, Inception's on a level, right? So we're like, is us, does us really belong on that level is what we're, this is like when someone's up for the, a hall of fame, you know, in a sport and you're like, okay, they had like 50 touchdowns and led the league for six seasons. You know, are they really, should they, like this movie's great. It's great. And now we're discussing just, how great, right? So we get lost in the, we, we start to focus in like, okay, well, really, how how great are we really looking at an all-timer here? When right. the question that everyone wants to know is, is it good? Should I go see it? Yes, it's right. good. Yes. yes. Yes, it's good. So go see it. We are talking about it on a different level. That, yeah. that, that's, yeah. that, that's, what, you know, that's actually a really great explanation because a lot of our conversations today, I, I, I have a hard time like, disagreeing in the sense of like I feel bad for about it sometimes so I'll apologize like I'm just like Jake you're not wrong I'm not right whatever uh, even though we don't I don't need to I, I just feel like guilty sometimes about like disagreeing with people um, but my point being is that 
we are all in love with the movie, and then we are up over a hill talking about whether or not it's going to be on Mount Rushmore. Yeah, and that's like that. That's yeah, that's funny. It's not yeah, it's not an argument to whether or not it's good. It's an yeah. argument to whether or not it's a masterpiece. And, yes. and, and this is gonna. This is my. This might shock both of you. And I. And, and I'm. I, and I'm not saying this is a bit. I think Us is a better movie than Inception. I really do. And, whoa, and, I, and I, whoa. No, I'll tell you why. I don't. I think Inception has problems. Inception has uh, emotional problems. I mean, like to me, up until Interstellar. Nolan to me didn't hit the emotional note for me yet. I agree. With uh, and, uh, and, and my point being is that I love Christopher Nolan. You guys know I love Christopher Nolan. Dunkirk is a very <laughs> is a very cold movie. Um, but you know, you think back to his films. Inception to me, I'll never forget this. I used to host a radio show, and I had Wally Pfister call in one night, the cinematographer on that film, and I said, "Can I be honest with you for a second? I love this movie so much." But there's a shot in this film that I think could have been the, the, the deciding moment where the movie would have been a masterpiece or a classic. I think it, I think it lost me. Um, and I love Inception. Uh, and I probably gave it a 5 out of 5 when it came out because I loved it. But upon re-examining it, there's a, the moment when Marion Cotillard's character jumps off the building and DiCaprio cries. Di- DiCaprio is one of the greatest criers of all time. I mean, Shutter <laughs> Island, he's amazing. <laughs> Nolan cuts away from DiCaprio so quickly that you don't get a feel for that moment. And I remember telling Wally, I was, I was like, why did you guys cut so soon? And he, he made a joke. He's like, oh, maybe like Leo started laughing or something like that. He was kidding around, but it was a, it, I don't know why. I know it's a very specific thing, but that was the moment that I feel like Nolan could have then taken us over emotionally and then guided us throughout the rest of the film. That's why I think Interstellar is his best movie because it's the first time I actually really felt for the characters in his movies. So I do think Us, in my opinion, is a better film than Inception. And, the only, and the only reason I compare the two is because you just said something along the lines of the, the masterpiece level of what Inception is in regards to the scheme of, the scheme of movies. Yeah. I think Us is a better movie, for sure. But emotionally, definitely. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, you guys, I'm not sure you guys disagree, but I mean, I, I think it's an interesting... I mean, I love Inception, but it's it, it's emotionally cold. In my um, I don't love Inception the way that you guys both do. Uh, so I would also agree that Us is a better movie because I, I do think I love Us. I need to see it again before I can actually determine that I love it. Um, but I, which, Inception which to are, me yeah. is more of an impressive technical, technical feat than writing. it is yeah. a movie yeah. that I would just, if it's on one of the cable channels, I leave it on because I love it. Yeah, it's a great, Inception's an amazing film. It's like an indie film locked in a $200 million budget. It's amazing, but yeah. it's emotionally cold. I, I, I don't really find people disagreeing with that. Jake, do you think Inception... No, I mean, but I would. I mean, I would say that's unfortunately a theme of Nolan's movies. I mean, I feel like his movies are fairly emotionally. Cold. Interstellar. Mm. See, mm. to me, that's. I think that's why corn. I loved Interstellar so. Yeah, oh, so much uh, corn. No, see, no, wait. So we, we've <laughs> played a lot Nolan, of corn. Dude. We've played Nolan Blend before, and I yes. do find it interesting. I think Jake, you went with Dark Knight. I think uh, I don't remember what Sean's was. I did the Prestige. The Prestige right. is still my favorite one. Of his and I did Interstellar, and we none of us picked Inception, and it's a brilliant film. But again. Inception it's, was my number one film of the year, the year it came out. Oh, I wow. loved it. I gave it a five out of five. It's an amazing movie. But looking back on it, that shot, I think, could have taken the movie over the edge. 
Well, that is how we Jordan feel about us. <laughs> Wait, so can we, can we give our ratings? I know Jake wants to see it again. Uh, yeah, and so do you, I don't Sean? Really feel comfortable giving a rating right we now. Could, we couldn't just give our initial rating, what you think it is right at the moment. You don't have to. I, I gave it a five. I think it's a masterpiece. So I give it a four and a half. I give it a four and a half. I loved it. I think that, if I give it a four, and this, right, I now, can't right now I give see, it a four. I can't see a repeat viewing while I think I will appreciate even more a lot of the things that you see, Kevin. I don't think that a second viewing is going to correct a lot of the things that Jake and I see. Well, your biggest question, which I won't go into, right. uh, I don't think is a problem. I know. That, Here's what I'll say, though. And, and I'm not saying that, like, we're speaking on behalf of the um, average moviegoer, the average audience that's going to see it this weekend. I think a lot of people are going to be on the side of having questions and being annoyed that the answers aren't there. But that is the beauty of cinema. Like, like that's like saying when you walk out of Inception, if you don't know if it's a You're, dream or not, that, the, that, that's, that's, that's the same apples and oranges, thing, man. Dude. It's apples and oranges. And by the way, I want to clarify that I'm not saying that us has anything to do with dreams. I'm comparing I know, a, but an I, open-ended the, 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 movie. The, the open-ended, the, the, that's, it's different. Because we're talking about fundamental plot issues the entire film of we'll talk about it next week next it's week it's about we'll dreams yeah. and they no, don't we'll tell you it's a dream apples and oranges, think about dude. that for a second apples and oranges they don't tell you they never give you the answer <laughs> kevin is the only person i can think of who name drops wally fister uh in stories that he's sharing and that is appropriate because we are about to hop into our exclusive interview with a cinematographer uh, ben davis who is having a wonderful time at the theaters currently shot captain marvel uh the number one movie at the box office worldwide and has dumbo on the horizon so let's get right to our uh, conversation with ben davis about all things movies Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Um, congratulations, first off, on the success of Captain Marvel. We love getting um, filmmakers, cinematographers, directors on after the film is out and the audience has been able to appreciate it. Uh, it's definitely off to a really great start. So far now, this is um, your fourth go with Marvel Studios, obviously the first Guardians, Age of Ultron, Doctor Strange, and now this. And I'm curious, what is the one stylistic thread that you've tried to stick to uh, in all of the Marvel projects you've been able to work on? No, no not particularly. I think each property that I've, I've shot has its own language and uh, um, speaks for itself. Uh, I think there it, there is obviously within the Marvel Universe there is a, a template uh, visually, but it's a, a loose template. I mean, if you look at the source material, there's a wide range of artists and styles within within the source material. So not not particularly. I mean, I don't I don't think I I think I treat each film with its own as its own beast. Ben, whenever you're you're working on a film and you're sort of crafting uh, what you know will be some pretty amazing shots and hopefully shots that people recognize as, as truly beautiful work, what is the balance of wanting to do your best work, wanting to craft a shot that people go, oh, that's beautiful, but also make sure that it doesn't distract the audience from the story that we're supposed to be paying attention to. Uh, yeah, that's something, I think that's something that I, you, know, you learn with the experience the more, you know, the longer I've done this job and the more I realize, I began to realize that, you know, the imagery cannot be everything. I mean, no, a lot of that would depend on the type of movie you're making. You know, some 
films thrive on imagery where others, uh, the storytelling is far more important. I mean, I, I personally feel that um, the, story, the story and the film needs to come first in, in every scenario. Um, and if the images aren't, if the cinematography isn't serving that purpose and is working against it, then, then you're doing the wrong thing. Uh, and that's that. I think that has to be the philosophy. You know, Ben, uh, uh, when Captain Marvel finally re- released, uh, you know, the internet is a f- crazy thing where people like start talking about theories and ideas, and there were a lot of mashups of um, some of the shots in your film with Pulp Fiction, and uh, where there was a, sp- a specific, sh- yeah, there was a specific shot side by side comparison of. Agent Coulson and Sam Jackson in the car that was compared to the Pulp Fiction sequence with Travolta and Jackson. And then there was a shot of Ben Mendelsohn's character drinking the soda, very similarly to how he, uh, you know, Jackson drank the soda in Pulp Fiction. Were those on purpose? Did you did you talk to the directors about paying homage to Tarantino, or are those just coincidences? I I think those are more coincidences. I mean, the fact that Sam. He's driving the car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's only certain places you could put a camera to cover a car seat. <laughs> and, <laughs> and a young Samuel Jackson is driving the car. I, I think, you know, that's purely coincidence. Um, ben drinking the shake. Um, I think that was pure Ben. And you'll have to ask him that question, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if he wasn't riffing on that idea. So there was no discussion, though, of, like, paying homage to Quentin Tarantino? No, there were. There, there are. Well, there may have been between Ben and Anna and Ryan, but certainly, you know, that may well have happened, that conversation. Uh, but not that I was aware of. But it wouldn't surprise me at all. We were, you know, for Anna and Ryan, they did want to reference... There were movies from that period, and, you know, and also... Uh, we reference a lot of Sam's work, but you know, we started referencing it uh, early work because we wanted to see what he looked like because we had to do the, um, the de aging pro- process. But we also sort of observed those films in their own right. But so, so sometimes these influences come along subliminally. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm really glad you brought up the de-aging uh, process because it's something that has blown all of us away. You know, in watching the film, it's it's so incredible how much that tech has evolved enormously just in recent years, you know, to the point where you can make Sam look exactly like he did in 1995. And I'm just curious how your cinematography is able to contribute to that magic trick. Well, most of that, I mean, basically we had Sam there, obviously, at, at his current age we photo- I photographed him and knit him as I would his character in any normal scenario so there's nothing that I'm doing to aid that process uh, uh, the great thing about that process is that I can write the scene as I as the scene merit and then the de-aging process happens uh, in post-production so there are no um, dictums put upon me about how that shot, shot had to be lit or executed. There are tracking marks on the face in order to help you with that. I mean, I, I think it's very encouraging. I also think, I mean, it's, it's an interesting subject, that one, because, because what, is it, you know, what does it mean in the long term that you can always play 
a younger actor, or do we get into a situation where we're completely creating creating actors um, from nothing? In the end, right. you know, by referencing old material of them, you know. Right? We're all curious how Star Wars is going to do Carrie Fisher, right? Like everyone's sort of curious how that's going to look. Well, they did Peter Cushing, didn't they? Um, right. Pretty successfully. Uh, I just, you know, I just wonder, you know, who knows where that going to take us who knows where cinematography and filmmaking is going to be in decades to come for instance you know maybe maybe they won't you know I have a theory that maybe at one point we'll get to a point where there won't be a set and there won't be actors it will be completely generated um, uh, artificially but let's hope not (laughs) yeah that's terrifying Ben, I want to talk about what it means uh, to sign on for a director uh, like Tim Burton, who has such a visual style that even, I would say, the average moviegoer is very aware of. A lot of people, you know, when you say a Tim Burton movie, it, a, a particular type of images and color palettes come up in their head. Are Do you still feel the freedom to do your own work coming into a, 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 the film of a director who is so notable for a particular type of style and, and color scheme and color palettes? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I would argue the point there, because if you look at Tim's body of work, you know, and you go from Edward Scissorhands to Batman to Beetlejuice uh, to Big Eye, you know, they're, 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 they're all very, very different stylistically and photographically. So I don't think that Tim has a particular style. They are, there are tropes and things that, that, that do define his movies, but I don't think that... But I think each of his films uh, stands on its own merit. Uh, so, so I didn't feel that working with him, and I don't feel I was ever... In terms of the cinematography, in terms of lighting, I don't think it was ever sort of... There was ever a style I felt I had to do in it because it was a Tim Burton movie. See what I mean? There were very much Tim conducts the the visual palette, um, and what's on screen. It all comes from his mind, you know, from the processes and the imagination. You know, Tim's imagination, is, and he kind of centrally conducts that process. So he he is he is subtly adjusting production design, costume, cinematography. He has a handle on all of that and he brings it into a space where he wants the film to sit. But I didn't feel that I was trying to light or shoot a Tim Burton movie as such. You know, Ben, um, this is a question I hadn't planned to ask you, but I just kind of came to my mind just now. Um, I was curious, throughout your career all the sequences that you've shot, um, uh, all the moments that you've captured in a camera, um, was is there a shot that took you off guard, meaning that you were emotionally affected by the moment where I know you're doing a job and I know you're shooting a sequence, but you're also dealing with storytelling and emotion. Was there ever a moment where you were behind a camera and it, 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 like it, it took you in and you almost forgot you were filming it? Oh, yeah, uh, all the time. Um, I think that's one of the great privileges of what I do is to be behind, is to be so close to a moment 
that you're, that's being created for you. Um, and to be that close to great actors and actresses sort of performing those moments. So those are the bits I remember. I, usually the moments that I remember are, you know, I've, I've, I've obviously been there photograph things that I, uh, that I photographed uh, visually. I thought, wow, that's absolutely stunning. You know, you're, I've shot on Easter Island at sunset. And, you know, I could go on and on and, and Everest, etc. You, know, you see things that, that visually will blow your mind. But I think the most emotional moments I've had and the most sort of, you know, uh, the greatest moments I've had on set have been watching great actors or actresses work. You know, I can remember, if you want a particular moment of, of late, I think it's the moment with, on three billboards uh, with Frances where she, we shot it at the end of the day and she is uh, by the billboards and she's potting up some flowers and a deer comes along and there's this, there's this emotional moment where she speaks to the deer as it, yeah, it was just a beautiful moment. I remember that very well. So there were the, 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 the moments that are around now, I remember moments with Sam Rockwell on Seven Psychopaths where he completely ad-libbed and riffed on something. I'm just going to get my boys to turn their computers sound down a bit. Um, boys, can you turn it down? Um, <laughs> I remember those, those moments. I have two boys too. I know how hard it is to keep their YouTube down. <laughs> That's a challenge. Yeah, well, it seems to get, it seems to get louder. <laughs> as they listen to it I'm sure they turn it up uh, Ben I want to take you back to Captain Marvel just briefly because I saw you um, mention in another interview that you felt it almost operates as two movies um, between the cosmic and the earthbound and very few MCU movies up to this point have had to balance both of those in one film and I'm curious just visually how you helped to differentiate them and if you learned any tricks on the first Guardians to sort of help you out in putting that palette together yeah well on Guardians we obviously it was the first real base movie, if you see what I mean, um, where we went to sort of a galaxy. Um, so we definitely sort of defined a style, what we thought that would be on Guardians, you know, where it was quite a rich palette uh, and the world, we wanted the, the other worlds to be kind of visually stunning. Um, so we had a, a very much a... a, a so, Guardians was a lot of groundwork for that. So, but on Captain Marvel, we, you know, we made a very, there were very deliberate um, artistic choices that we made to differentiate between the two worlds. For instance, all our stuff in space, as it were, or in, in these other worlds, we wanted to have a very, um, quite a strong color palette for those worlds and very sort of, and very, um, Defined camera movement, if that makes any sense, where we wanted the Earth sequences to be very grounded and real. Um, I was like, you know, I've said this before, I always like the idea that you have this sort of extraordinary character in an ordinary world, whereas when you go mm. into space, the world should be extraordinary. So th that was the kind of grounding philosophy. And Anna and Ryan particularly wanted to embrace a handheld, very personal and intimate journey with uh, Bree's character, Captain Marvel, so, or Carol Danvers, should we call her. But um, they wanted it to be a very personal story. Um, so we felt a handheld language for that was the best way to execute that. Um, because there's an intimacy 
between a handheld camera and a character, I think, you know, it's very organic and very responsive, you know. It's a, you know they move, the camera moves with them. There's a, there's a, there's a dance as such. You know? Ben, having started that journey with James Gunn for the first Guardians, are you happy he's going to be able to conclude the trilogy or continue it in part three? I, 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 I am happy. I'm happy for Marvel and James. You know, I don't know too much of the detail of what happened with um, some statements that James had made. But, uh, but I, uh, you know, having worked James, he was generally a very, very nice man. I'm, so I'm very pleased for him, yeah. I think he's also a very talented writer, you know. Do you think you'll DP the third film? Um, I don't know. I have no idea. No, well, I haven't been asked. <laughs> who, knows? <laughs> who knows what will come you know, who knows we were talking earlier today you know if you go back to um, the original Iron Man go back to phase one of Marvel it kind of feels like those initial films kind of had to fit within the same box and have the same look and have the same feel and, and you could make the argument at least from a fan's perspective from a viewer that it was around Guardians where it kind of felt like Marvel was getting their filmmakers and giving their, their, their cinematographers more flexibility and more freedom and more creativity as a creative mind on the set have you felt over these past few years and these past few movies, have you felt uh, Marvel almost kind of loosening the leash a little bit and allowing their filmmakers to get a little bit more wild and creative on set? I I don't know if, if, if the Marvel team, you know, Kevin Lewis and Victoria, but I, they have n- I have never been on the leash from them creatively at all, you see, and I don't know if they ever have. I think just as they went along they've started employing different filmmakers who are expanding that, the idea. Or, the, or the, you know, if you look at, you know, they make some very bold choices of who they use. You know, they take risks. Um, and, you know, and I think, I think it's more that I, but, but I, as far in my journey with Marvel, I have always been given absolute creative freedom to do as I, should be done for that particular property yeah for that particular movie so I haven't there's never there has never been a leash uh, yeah particularly um, if you think that my, the first thing I did was Guardians I mean there was no leash there at all it was like they were very much you know, you know wow us do, do you know really you know all bets are off do what you feel you want to do so so I've never had that any form of sort of I've never felt there was any form of creative control. And, and also, in terms of what I wanted to do, you know, in terms of finance, you know, they've been very supportive in terms of, you know, because some of the sets, particularly on, on the first Guardians, needed, you know, uh, you know, they needed some money spent on them in order to get them. You know, there's a, when they go to the, um, the prison set uh, on Guardians, that, that needed... We had to install something like 25,000 practical lights into that set. Practical light, wow. They're all on wow. you know, and, and it took, there was a, you know, it wasn't something that was budgeted at the time, and I had to go to them and say, look, I, if we want to make this place look great, this is, the, this is what we need to do. And they were, yep, yeah, okay, get on with it. Let's get it done. So, so I, they, they've always been very, very supportive. You know, Ben, uh, this is kind of a two-part question, but kind of all goes back to the same thing. I, I, some of my favorite moments in Dumbo were the reactions of people seeing Dumbo fly for the first time. And, you know, just the, the sheer joy on Danny DeVito's face or Michael Keaton's face or anybody who's seeing, like, it, like you feel like a kid again. It's kind of like what that whole concept was. 
I'm curious, two parts. One, how aware are you as a cinematographer of CG in regards to when you set up your shot, if you know something's going to be CG in the shot, if it's not really there, how do you shoot it in a way where you are aware that it's going to be put in? And then on top of that, um, Dumbo specifically, considering Dumbo is CGI, uh, I was reading or I heard that there was even points where a person was walking around on set in all fours in a green suit to 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 create that for the actors. So, like, how does that play into how you set up your shot? And then, what did Dumbo look like on set when uh, in regards to the practicality of it? Well, well, there are different ways of doing that. Obviously, you, we did a lot of that on Guardians too, with Rocket and Groot. You know, they they those were characters that was pretty CG. So, so there are different ways of doing. CG characters, and a lot of it depends on, you know, how, what, it depends on the shot and what they're doing in the shot. For instance, if there's sort of human contact with that character, then they, you know, if you're an actor and say, say it's Dumbo and you're patting him on the head, you need to have something that you're going to pat. You can't sort of pat open space. Um, <laughs> so there needs to be a character. Also, if there is a move, if that character, if that CG character is moving through space, and actors are interacting with it, they need to have something to look at and to follow, you know, and if there's, you know, I've done it also, I mean, I go back to something like Wrath of the Titan, where we had things with um, Worthington fighting a a beast that was going to be a 2G creation, but he needed something to fight and something to pull against and to be pushed by, so you'd always have something there. So you always try and give the other actors something to react to something to interact with you know and sometimes that may be a great big green beanbag or it may be an actor dressed as that character in some way or it may just be a fully rendered model of that of that character um so as a cinematographer I you I would always try and put something there for them I would always shoot a we would have a sort of photo real um, model of that whatever whoever that was whether it was Rocket or Dum- or Dumbo and we would put that in and I would like that as a lighting reference and make sure you you know one thing you have to be very careful to do is make sure you shoot the coverage you know in Dumbo you're shooting a film and your leading man isn't there so you've got to make sure you give him the space within the frame and also give him his close up and you require play shots for that, so you always have to remember to to, to do those. Ben, real quick, what impressed me though was were scenes where like Dumbo would be like covered in the hay or whatever was in like the the barn area, like the the strings of hay, and the, he would get up or whatever that would be called. I'm not sure of the name of it, but uh, he would he would get up and the hay would fall off of him. Um, okay. Did. Yeah. did was was that physically happening on set? Yeah, well, on that particular shot, we had a, a performer in a green suit who did that action. Um, for the closer work, we had a small trunk made that protruded out of the hay. And then some of the hay would have then been added in in PG later as well, from the falling hay. So there was a combination of methods around that series of shots. Um... And, and then we also, sometimes if we wanted the hay to move and we weren't seeing the elephant, 
there would be an airbag under the A which we'd animate. <laughs> That's awesome, man. I, so there yeah. are so many different methods in order. There's no one defined way of creating that, of photographing that character. There are many different ways of doing it. You know, sometimes we'd have little body parts of Dumbo which would be grey because if someone was touching him, you didn't want them to put a, putting their hand on a green a green screen person because then you get green contamination on the flesh tone and then that's very hard to clean up. So so, the, so there are so many different ways of executing that. That's awesome. Ben, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. Obviously, a lot of people have gone out of their way to see Captain Marvel, you know, not once, but multiple times and we hope that just as many people head out. Across for Dumbo yes listen a new t- a new Tim Burton movie is going to get us out to the theaters that's for sure so we appreciate you taking the time well, Tim Stamp is all over the movie you'll love it definitely in movie and it's also one of Danny Elfman's like best scores in a, a long time like like they, 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 the whole combination of, of of everything in that film in regards to your cinematography the score Tim's direction it, it is it's a it's a culmination of like a lot of great talent yeah, I, I, you know, the costumes, everything in it, I think, you know, in terms of the way he's built a, a film and a world which I don't think we've seen before. That's that's what I love about it. It's completely unique. And we need filmmakers who have a unique voice, you know. That's important. 100%. Thank you, Ben. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Thank you. You guys have to make sure that you get out to see Captain Marvel in theaters if you haven't already. And of course, grab your tickets to see Dumbo, which to me, I have not been able to see the finished product of Dumbo, but the trailers, the visuals that they uh, captured in the trailers are a sweet nod to the original animation and just this nostalgia realm that Tim Burton is trying to create. It looks fantastic. So uh, thank you so much to Ben Davis for jumping on. This week's blend game is the first time that we are repeating an earlier blend game, uh, but emphasizing the fact that we're playing favorites. And of course, we have to go to who, someone who I think would be um, the prototypical uh, patron saint of Real Blend. Like if we had My to pick My favorite director someone, of all time. Yeah, that, that's what I'm saying. Like, I think if we had to pick, we called several people patron saints to the point where Jake actually argued one time, pretty convincingly, if you've made a film, you are a patron saint of Real Blend. But no, I, I think like that, so our Mount Rushmore has a lot of faces, right? That's fair to say, uh, but Spielberg would be- would I'm, I'm going to make one. you guys stick to four one day. We don't have time for it today, but I'm going to I'm gonna really oh. hold your, your feet against the fire one day and make you pick four. I could that, pick that, four that, right that'll now. Be, that'll be really We fun ain't got one. time for that. Can I they know. be dead? Or a lot, sure, be alive. Of course. Yeah, of oh, course. Well, that's easy. That's easy. Okay. All right. So Spielberg blend, and we are now taking it from the perspective of our absolute favorite for the personal reasons that we choose. Jake, I also told remind people um, what, what we, we said chose, for best. What we chose best. Yeah. I don't remember what I chose for best. Oh yeah. Oh well, there goes that. that well, was I, cho- fun. Yeah. I chose Jaws. <laughs> if you remember, you can. Yeah. Sure. You yeah, chose I chose Jaws, Jaws as well. Jaws is best. And I go first. Uh you get to go first. All right. Uh, my favorite Spielberg film of all time is Jurassic Park. Mm. It, to me, is the quintessential, just unbelievable summer blockbuster that just frame for frame makes me feel good about my love for cinema. I mean, the blend of Spielberg's direction, uh, John Williams' score. I mean, keep in mind, it came out in 93, so I was five. I mean, five is a prime age for loving dinosaurs. And seeing dinosaurs brought to life, I mean, really the first film that ushered in the new era of special effects. 
It holds up because it's a perfect blend. It only uses special effects when it needs to. Mm-hmm. They built prop dinosaurs. I mean, so many shots of the T-Rex in that rain breakout of the paddock sequence. To me, I mean, we're talking the film is now, we're approaching the 26th anniversary of that film. And it looks better than anything Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom did last year. I mean, everything about that movie, it's beat for beat, uh, it, it, so well paced. The characters, each one, so fully developed, beautifully acted. It is the quintessential like summer blockbuster that I, I remember seeing as a kid and just remember just being astounded. And it was really one of the first movies that kind of reminded – it made me realize that there were things about movies that I loved more than just saying, yes, either I like that movie or I don't. Um, I, last week it was my pick for my favorite shot of all time, which I, you know obviously I still stand by. Nothing's changed in the last seven days. Um, but <laughs> every, everything about that film, I mean I – like after, after I talked about it last week, talking about that shot, I turned it on. It, it's that it's that film for me. I, just, I, I I worship it. I love it. It's um it's a fantastic. Do you, do you know what Jurassic World? Uh, Jurassic World, <laughs> Jurassic Park, uh, reminds me that Spielberg is so good at like that. Spielberg is the master of remembering to get memorable set pieces into your movie, right? At, but they're not set pieces that aren't. They're constantly in service of the story. Like there are some movies that are just set pieces. Because the people think this is a great concept and I want to do this visually, but it doesn't make sense in the scheme of the movie. Spielberg always has the best set pieces that fit into the perspective of the movie. And Jurassic Park has two of the greatest, which is the initial T-Rex, you know, coming to the to the cars that are broken down in the rain. Yeah. And to me, the raptors in the kitchen. Yeah, the kitchen. Yeah. Also, don't forget, Spielberg had two movies come out in 1993. One went on to become the highest grossing film of all time. The other one won Best Picture. Yeah. He was doing post-production for (laughs) Jurassic Park on the set of Schindler's List. How he was able to pull that off, he told me that he would never do. I interviewed him and talked to him because he's done a few. There have been a few years where he's done two movies in one year. And he said he would never again do two movies with that much of a tonal shift. Because he absolutely he hated being on like the set of Auschwitz or at Auschwitz, excuse me, at Auschwitz, worrying about the special effects for a dinosaur. Right. Um, he felt what, it was incredibly disrespectful. But the fact that he was able to do it is astounding. Well, it's right. interesting because Ready Player One and The Post were done at the same mm-hmm. time, and those are mm-hmm. pretty tonally. Yeah, but I, but I, I still think yeah. that 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 The Post isn't as I'm not saying it's not a serious movie but it's not yeah. as important I agree as can we like take a minute and just recognize how much of Jake's anchor voice came out there one of them was the highest grossing films of all time <laughs> did it really and the second one won this really? picture oh dude that was like a button on a package it was what so people, cool. <laughs> what, what people actually, I actually don't I actually know I actually really hate when people tell me that so <laughs> I, I is I that Jake actually has a prompter in front of him during the show. <laughs> Everything he says, he's reading. Oh I, oh, I promise you, there's a lot of stuff I want to read off the prompter that I choose not to. I am Ron Burgundy. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, I've been told you get to go next. Well, it, this was a... And by the way, I, Jake, I don't think you sound like an anchor there. I disagree with Sean. Um, <laughs> as someone who works in TV, I, I didn't hear that. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, this, this, was a, this was a hard one for me. And I think I have to go with similar emotions to what Jake just talked about is to where I was in my life when I saw this X movie. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, ET was, I I mean, I was born 84. So ET, I think was what 87. I don't remember what year that movie came out. You know, I saw it, but it wasn't like impactful on me as a young kid. And I, I mean, you have to look at the timeline of Spielberg. Jurassic Park has to be my choice only because of where I was. I was nine years old. 
It was a mind-blowing experience. And, I mean, I think Jaws is his best movie, and I think he's made better the movies than Jurassic Park, but Jurassic Park is pretty flawless. It, it is, like, from a special effects standpoint, as Jake was saying, like, you're dealing with somebody who only used the, uh, uh, CGI, early CGI, when he had to. And that blend of Stan Winston's special effects mixed in with the real effects of the CGI effects of the, you know, things that were not really happening on set. Very similar to what Cameron did with Terminator 2, where you blend the real exoskeletons of the the Terminators with real things. Like Robert Patrick had real sharp objects, you know, on his body for certain sequences that weren't like fully CG. Um, But Jurassic Park is the wonder of them arriving to Jurassic Park is how we all feel when we watch it. You know what I mean? It's like, that is... it. Sam Neill's reaction... Yeah, when, when he uh, steps... Looks over... And, you know, yeah. that, 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 that look is literally what we feel. I mean, it was... It's an <laughs> unbelievable uh, film from a technical standpoint. But you mentioned the set pieces, Sean. That raptor kitchen scene... The shot that always blew my mind was the blowing of the air onto the window from from his, from the nose. Mm-hmm. Um, that scene is so scary. And also, do you remember what I don't know why this stands out for me? The with the shot of the, the feet walking and you hear the the, the nail tap yes, twice. Like, yes. Uh, like, 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 like someone made the conscious choice. Yeah. To cuz it seems like random. I go like an animal would do that, but obviously velociraptors don't exist. Someone on set made the conscious choice the toenail should tap twice. And I don't know why that stands out to me, but it's brilliant. Yeah. Oh yeah, that yeah. it was so scary too because the toenail was so long, yeah, and like and it was very sharp. Um, I mean, there's so many like it's funny to me because like that's probably the movie of his that I can go over more scenes about in my mind. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. So if I think about all Spielberg's movies, I can walk through Jurassic Park. Like I think of Newman from Seinfeld's sequence when he dies in that rain on the hill with the when, when you know I think the what is it what is the was it a, it wasn't a raptor it was like a um the dinosaur that's a isn't that a made, made up that dinosaur up. yeah they yeah, made that that's up a fake dinosaur it sprays him in the face right with whatever acid or chemical yeah. whatever that was but that whole sequence scares me so much and the rain element of it and then Joe Mazzello who was obviously just in uh, Bohemian Rhapsody that the scene when he launches off the fence. Uh, and then there's there's just so many classic moments. And I think a lot of it has to do with Jake over the years talking about how much it meant to him. And I was thinking about like my childhood. I'm like, that is probably the one film that I saw at a certain age that now like look back on has to be my favorite Spielberg movie because I can't think yeah. of another film that I watched more than that and that I was more wowed by. But also, as a 34-year-old man looking back on it, it still holds up just like the day I saw it. Yep. So it's like, it. that's what makes it so special. So, um, Jurassic Park. All right, Park. two for Jurassic Park. Um, and in choosing mine, I was borderline surprised uh, once I realized what the choice was going to be because it meant that I was not picking five masterpieces that I adore, which is the challenge of Spielberg. Um and, and and this mine speaks to also when I saw it, and I'm older than you guys are, um, but it's also the type of movie that I like most. And if I'm going to pick the type of movie that I want to watch more than anything else, it's um, a summer blockbuster adventure movie. And so to me, I went with Raiders. Dun-da-da-da, dun-da-da. <laughs> and I almost went... 
Yeah, it's a great yeah. choice. None of yeah. these choices are bad. I it's mean, impossible. I, the hardest part about choosing Raiders is it meant I wasn't choosing E.T. or Jaws. I mean, that's literally the only thing that separates them from why I went with one over the other. And the main reason that I love Raiders and the reason why he, it's my favorite is because of Harrison Ford. And I put Harrison Ford's Indy over Sam Neill, who I just don't think because he has to be a curmudgeon for most of Jurassic Park. Um and he does. Well, you know they offered that part to Harrison Ford first. Oh, did they really? No, I actually yeah, did not he know turned, that. He turned it down. That's cool. Yeah, I didn't that's know that. interesting. Um, Indy is to me the quintessential uh, movie character. Like I just, I love him so much. Great. Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones is the is ideal casting. Uh, when you talk about set pieces, uh, one of my favorite scenes in a movie in all time of all time is him fighting the the bald German guy. Just because of how much fun Spielberg has in the difference of their sizes, uh, in the sound of the punches <laughs> in that fight, and then the way he incorporates the Marion in the cockpit of the plane spinning around and the propellers and now they have to dodge it. It's just brilliant. Like, it's so... It's, the choreography of that is incredible. Uh, Indy getting dragged behind the truck, you know, fighting in and around the truck. It's set pieces. It's the point I made earlier. It's, it's set pieces that fuel the story forward. Uh, that move, that move, movie doesn't have a single wasted scene. Uh, it has one of the most iconic John Williams scores of all time, yeah. and uh, it's just to me, young Spielberg operating at the complete top of his game. And uh, I love Temple of Doom also, and I me like too. Last Crusade. I think uh, so. It's interesting, like Jurassic Park. Not that I ding it for this. But it's one incredible movie and four not so great movies. I actually like I do like Lost World. I don't obviously don't I, li- love I don't mind Lost, Lost World either. But yeah. there are okay. some quintessential Spielberg moments in Lost World. The one that stands out to me is the trailer hanging over the cliff and Julianne sure. Moore falling. You think she's gonna die? Tremendous. Like, that's such a Spielberg thing. Yeah. What's, inter- what's interesting? Like like when I'm gathering here, and this this is probably my favorite blend game we've played in in the favorite department because it is such a personal experience like mm-hmm. like if i was born 10 years earlier raiders would probably be that movie for me and like yeah, and, and i think there's something about if you were born 10 years later what would it be maybe ready player one probably m- maybe minority report yeah that's I, another one that and I'm what's funny sure. is that's minor- super underrated minority super report is actually a movie that i went to when i when i when i first got this this, when someone gave me this idea, of, or, or Gabe gave us the idea, <laughs> Minority Report literally popped up in my head. Now, yeah. keep in mind, it might be like a more recency effect because Ready Player One is my favorite Spielberg movie since Minority Report. But like in the traditional sense of what a favorite movie Spielberg is, and it's the one I've seen the most. And Jurassic Park is the one that I can go through in my mind. And I think Jake has kind of helped me discover that because of all the times we discussed it. And, and also, also, too, don't forget, you and too. I were in Hawaii last year for the yes. 25th anniversary of Jurassic Park. Like We yeah. were essentially at Jurassic Park with Jeff Goldblum for the 25th anniversary of Jurassic Park. It, it was, to me, like, it was one of those moments, and, and we say this a lot by nature of what we get to do for our jobs. It was one of those moments where I just thought, if five, six-year-old Jake could, like, see what the hell is going to happen to him in his life? Like he just, <laughs> right. he wouldn't believe it. He yeah. Wouldn't believe it. It, and was, it, it was, it was, it was surreal. Uh, I chills just t- talking about yeah. it. Yeah. And like Kulo Ranch, like it was walking onto Kulo Ranch and seeing that. The log. Yeah, the, the log, log is still there. That, that's the yeah. uh, Neil and the kids hide behind. Right. While the, um, the gala, the gala, galalimus 
jump over them. Yeah, and it's interesting. Like to me, like looking at every Spielberg movie, and I don't remember what I chose for John Williams blend, but like I chose I'm, Jurassic Park. And I think I'm thinking back. No, now, I didn't. it's like. I don't know what I, I know. chose. You might, might, might John chose yeah, Star Wars. I think, I think I chose Star Wars because we were doing best. But if I yeah. were doing favorite, I would choose Jurassic Park. But there's something about... the oh, we're not doing John Williams for the next The one. way John Williams' <laughs> score takes us through Jurassic Park, yeah. it, it is the definition of a leading character. Yeah. Like the, It is magic. Like That yeah. movie is literally... And I've ridden that ride so many times at the uh, I think it was uh, Universal or no it was Disney I don't remember where, where where it was are you getting the Jeep I don't Universal. know if they have it anymore Universal. but you got in the Jeep and you went through like the Jurassic Park gates and they had like you know and they, there was water shooting out of the raptor's mouth whatever it was it was it's awesome man that it's movie awesome. is like it's 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 the per- it's perfect so all good. right Bro- Brooke horror fan uh broke horror fan broke horror fan says jaws uh, zero 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 JZ and Kimberly Sue say catch me if you can. Uh, Michael Kamen says Hook Hook. I love Hook. I've never seen it. Hope Harbaugh Hook? says Raiders of the Lost Ark and Paul Grimes says ET for next week. Um, because we are in March Madness, Gabe made the suggestion and I like it. We're playing hashtag Sports Blend, so you can bring your favorite sports movie of all time. Oh, any sport? Any sport. Oh. Any sport. You thought I was going to do basketball specifically, didn't you? But yeah, you can do any sport. Favorite sport movie. Hashtag sports blend. Let oh, us know your man. picks via Is email. Is it that I already have it? It's like in- instantaneous for me. No, that's fine. Instantaneous. Uh, email us at realblendedcinemablend.com or go to our Twitter feed, play along using the hashtag sports blend. And if you want to, you can also tell us... Um, who you think is going to win the national championship as we fill out our brackets. Who did you guys pick? Who do you have going all the way? Uh, Duke, probably. Um, Oh, I say I have Michigan State. Sorry, we're getting the wrap. I'm sorry. Yes, I have Michigan State University. The Chicago meetup will be Saturday, April 13th. Uh, More details as we get a better sense of how many people are actually coming. RSVP at bit.ly forward slash Chicago, all lowercase, or you can drop us an RSVP email at realblend at cinemablend.com. We will be back next week uh, with all of the more conversation, including an in-depth spoiler conversation on us. So your homework is to go see that before we get there. And thank you so much for listening to us for episode number 61 of Real Blend. As always, Dunkirk. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.